listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And this is episode 16, Drew Blood or Vampire Musicals Still Suck. Okay, before we begin, we need to discuss the elephant in the room, which is bootlegs. Bootlegs are a very common occurrence in theatre communities, Broadway and West End and further afield. They are illegally recorded versions of the show that are passed around amongst fans. They are obviously not legal and they are heavily frowned upon. We are watching the bootleg of Lestat and we have watched the bootleg of Wildburn's Dracula as well as listening to the cast recording. We are not lawyers, so we understand that we're walking on very thin ice here. Both these shows have obviously closed and have been closed for a very long time. There's no money changing hands here. We understand if you don't want to listen to this episode because of what we're doing. We know this is a really um, sensitive subject for a lot of musical and Broadway fans. We totally understand that. Uh, In order for us to tackle this topic, we felt we needed to actually experience them. So that's why we did it. We're not going to direct you to those bootleg sources. If you want to find them, uh, we welcome you to go digging yourselves. Don't share them with people who are in the shows. Don't be that dick. But this is a decision we've made. If you disagree with us, we're fine with that. And we're going to discuss the shows based on what we have seen through the bootlegs that are available. Yes, if and we if we were able to visit the show and pay for it we totally would have but for some of them it didn't last long enough for anything to happen yes not um, that that makes it a commendable yeah, I'm going to cut that thing we'll do it I'll see you there okay yeah well just like right. fan fiction don't show it to the actors um so nearly a year ago now uh, it was October I believe uh, we did an episode on Tanz der Vampir, the German language, originally Austrian musical based on a Roman Polanski film with music by Jim Steinem, so Meatloaf, and all that sort of thing with, with the love theme of Total Eclipse of the Heart. And now we're back to vampire musicals, none of which are anywhere near as fun as that musical was, not even when they blow up and fail. Yeah, this is the part of the series where we really touch on why everyone thinks vampire musicals are terrible, and even we, who love, legitimately, unironically love at least one vampire musical, are like, okay, you have a point here. Yeah, we we love vampires, we love musicals, therefore we should totally be down for vampire musicals, and we are, if they're the German version of Tars of Vampire, or the, <laughs> I guess the Hungarian, the French, or even the Japanese... Because Have you listened that far? What, to the Japanese? I've listened to some of the Japanese version. I don't think I've listened to the Hungarian. Uh, I've listened to the Hungarian, the French. The Belgian one is pretty... Was it Belgian or was it Dutch? One of them, they cut out a lot of songs and reordered it and it's like... Bleh. I will say that one of the reasons I think that vampire musicals fail so much, and we'll get to a little bit of it more towards the end of the episode, is I think the... English language sensibilities or musical sensibilities don't do this particular kind of genre really well. We tend to think of musicals, even ones that are 
really serious and tackle a lot of hard-hitting issues. We tend to think of it as being a bit more frivolous and silly and certainly camp. And Tanzer Vampire, wherever you think of it, strikes a very specific tone that it's really good at that just didn't translate to, you know, to, just didn't translate when it came to English language with Dance of the Vampires. Well, if they'd actually stuck close to the, to an actual, just a, a pretty straight well, translation. Well, they actually it, yeah. What it was that they did with that script, which is basically... Shit on it. What was it they said it was, well, they basically tried to do Mel Brooks' version of Anne Rice, but it was nowhere near funny enough to be Mel Brooks, and it was nowhere near sort of melodramatic or dedicated enough to be Anne Rice. Why not yeah, just cut out the middleman and just do Anne Rice. Dance of the Vampires, they'll try to do a comedy show out of a comedy show, not realising that it was a comedy show already. It wasn't especially specific to Europe or, or the German language. It probably could have worked with the right team in English. Maybe not with Michael Crawford doing whatever the hell it was Michael Crawford was doing in that show. I still don't know. They should have just gone with Meatloaf if they wanted some older, you know, English language guy. If they had to, you know, go with a name like that. Because anyone would be like, oh, wait, this is music by Jim Sam and Meatloaf's in it. People would show up for that. But they probably would. Keep in mind, Matt Out of Hell is legitimately one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Sorry, I think we should start things off by actually talking about the main inspiration for this particular episode, which is the recent news that there's going to be another vampire musical in our midst. Possibly. Keep in mind the way that musicals work with workshopping, fundraising, out-of-town tryouts and such. We may not see this show for a couple of years if it ever actually comes to Broadway. And that is that they're going to be making a True Blood musical. Which is interesting. I mean, part of me is wondering why now. The thing about True Blood is people forget just how big that show was when it was on HBO. Yeah. Because this was a pre-Game of Thrones era. Post-Sopranos, pre-Game of Thrones. And this was the biggest thing on HBO. I mean, it got millions of viewers. Not especially great reviews, especially as the show went further on. Actually, the reviews became incredibly negative because that show was just terrible. But people were watching. And I assume that they were watching for reasons other than Alexander Skarsgård, but I can't verify that. And didn't um, Anna Paquin get, like, a, an Emmy Award or something? She put Golden Globe for it. Golden Globe, okay. What? It was some sort of TV show award to she go with her Oscar. Pardon? She got a husband and kids out of it, too. Yeah. With Suki. Bill. Bill! <laughs> we're not mocking the accent, I swear, we're just mocking the show. I love Anna Paquin, but I, I don't feel like this was her, her zone. I actually don't think she's a bad Suki, it's just all of the accents in that show ended up like being like an episode of Alu Alu. Yeah, well she had like the Canadian, New Zealand, American smush accent. But considering the number of non-Americans playing <laughs> Americans in that show. The main cast of that show are primarily British or at least European. Well, Suki's the, well, Anna Paquin's the, yeah, um, Ryan Quantin was on Home and Away. Stephen Moyer is English. Yep. Skarsgård is Swedish, but he's playing a s- Scandinavian anyway. Yeah, the secondary ones were... The ones that people cared about, mostly. The, the ones that people saw naked the most. Yeah, and then Rob Kaczynski turned up in, I think, the sixth or seventh season. And got naked? Of course he got naked. Why are you even asking me? <laughs> um, considering... well, the show, as I mentioned, it was so big. And people forget that. Maybe because it wasn't so critically adored in the way that something like Game of Thrones is. Although I think one of the reasons that it is kind of aligned now is because it was primarily watched by women. I think in a way it treated the same way that Sex and the City was. 
Like, Sex and the City is a groundbreaking revolutionary show, whatever you think of that show. And it was watched primarily, if not exclusively, by women. And when that show ended, it doesn't seem to be part of the major TV conversation in the way that, like, The Sopranos and Deadwood and Game of Thrones and all the more masculine shows are. Even though they were very popular, often critically acclaimed, often award-winning, making a lot of money, True Blood was often nigh on unwatchable, especially towards the end. It is bad, bad TV. But it still deserves to be part of that conversation. And sometimes you just want to watch bad, bad TV. Right? I mean, there's a place for that. I mean, there's a place for genre fiction that isn't rooted in the totes dark and edgy and, oh, everyone's so miserable all the freaking time. I'm so sick of this trend. And that has a female eye. Yes. It has a completely rooted in the female gaze. Even though that show could be really weirdly misogynistic sometimes. So, like, majority of media. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and even in this film, those books, the Suki Sakura's books, are still wildly popular, even though they end in a way that I think everyone I know hates. Yeah, that was a definite up yours. <laughs> I'm wondering why now some of the, the buzz seems to have died off. Honestly, the way, best way to look at True Blood Musical, whether it happened or not, is to look at it through the context in which it's being created. So we've talked a little bit about the TV context of True Blood. I think we need to talk about the musical context that we'll be entering into. I would suggest to our listeners to go listen to the Dance Your Vampire episode. We don't touch on Dance of the Vampires as much, mostly because it's terrible. So we'll give a little bit of background for that. So we'll listen to the Dance episode and then come back. The Dance of the Vampires musical was, at the time, easily the biggest flop on Broadway. It lost pretty much its entire $10 million investment. There were huge fights between cast and crew. There were constant rewrites going on. They tried to take the show away from its slightly camp, relatively earnest melodrama of the German language production. They wanted to basically make Mel Brooks speak Sand Rice. It was very subject to the whims of uh, Michael Crawford as well. He didn't want to play another character like the Phantom again. And everyone was like, why did you pick this musical then? You know, This that- is Michael Crawford, a good... 15 years after Phantom of the Opera. With the He's f- done a couple of things. In the meantime, he went off to Vegas and did one of those really big budget kind of dinner shows they had uh, and got pretty severely injured at one point, I believe. So he was coming out, sorry, semi-retirement to the show, was apparently getting paid millions to do it and had a lot of creative control, which he used to turn the show into more of a kind of Actually, more like the comedy that it's based on, the movie Fearless Vampire Killer. Which is sad because... funny. Yeah, because that Fearless Vampire Killers isn't actually that funny. All the jokes fall flat. When they changed the jokes to for the musical, they actually made them work. And then he just took out all the things that made it work again. A big example of why certain musicals or certain types of musicals didn't work in uh, the US when they worked very, very successfully in um, Europe and even Asia... This is a problem that still persists because recently they tried to bring the German language musical of Rebecca to Broadway. Although that turned out that it probably wasn't going to happen because the guy that promised to put up like $5 million of the money didn't actually exist and then claimed <laughs> to have died of malaria. And then there was a weird fraud system going on. We will link to it in our show notes. It is the most bizarre 
Bialystok and Bloom producer style farce. If you, so that's why you'll probably never see Rebecca on Broadway. Yeah. Also, if you haven't read the uh, the Dance of the Vampires section on Wikipedia, <laughs> you need to because it's like the greatest Wikipedia shade ever. I'm ninety percent convinced that entire entry was written by Jim Steinem. There's a segment on the Wikipedia page for Dance of the Vampires called Michael Crawford, 9/11, and other disasters. It is brilliant. We will link to that as well. So we're looking at it in that context. So Dance of the Vampires premieres on Broadway in 2001 and closes Not six, seven months later. <laughs> yeah. So flop. Cut to 2004. Sorry. Cut to 2004 and we get the next vampire musical on Broadway, which is a straight-up adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Which actually had its first regional premiere in 2001. So he probably heard there was going to be a big vampire musical based on a big vampire musical. He was like, I'm going to get me some of that. Yeah. So if you're not a musical fan, let me introduce you to Frank Wildhorn. Frank Wildhorn is a musician, a songwriter, composer, his most famous creation is the Whitney Houston song Where Do Broken Hearts Go? A song that has made him quite a bit of money. And he writes a lot of musicals. Coincidentally, the majority of his musicals are adaptations of material in the public domain. I'm just saying. We do mean public domain. It's like Jekyll and Hyde, uh, Scarlet Pimpernel, Cyrano, uh, Dracula, Count of Monte Cristo, an Alice in Wonderland musical, a Bonnie and Clyde musical... And um, musicals on the Civil War. Yeah, this year that came out a musical on Marta Hari, one on Excalibur, um, and he also did Death Note the musical, which I'm really salty about, by the way. It's like of all the people you could have gotten, you got all the people you could have gotten to write a really dark, sinister musical on Death Note. You're fucking Frank Wildhorn, <laughs> and we will tell you why that is a problem. Frank Wildhorn's most famous musical creation is the musical adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde, which is known in the biz as a flop hit, which means it has all of the signs of being a successful show, but doesn't actually manage to make back any money. Indeed, none of Frank Wildhorn's Broadway shows have ever returned their investment. Like, ever. And yet he keeps getting money to do these shows, to the point where Charles Isherwood of the New York Times referred to him as the crabgrass of Broadway. They seem to like him in Europe, but they tend to do a lot of rewrites, I think. He seems to do a lot of rewrites, and I think he makes his money off of Asian and European productions. (laughs) But, I mean, kudos for the sheer determination to actually have a Broadway hit. It ain't going to happen. Yeah, I mean, he's still done better than us. Everyone's done better than us, no offence to us. I'm really (laughs) bad about myself now. Oh. It was like when Nelson Munt said, ha ha, food's held in the mirror. Oh dear. I'm ill-suited to judge Wildhorn's work objectively, because I've only heard some of it. I've seen a production of Jekyll and Hyde on YouTube. I probably should have seen another production, because it was the one starring David Hasselhoff. It ain't Like, I understand why people would like that show if it was sung by literally anyone else. So, him doing Dracula seems like he had a list of public domain Gutenberg copies of books and, hey, let's do Dracula. People have heard of Dracula. 
So he does the music, the lyrics are by John Hampton. Don Black is best as a collaborator with Andrew Lloyd Webber. He worked on a couple of his musicals, including Sunset Boulevard, which was another huge flop hit. That, that, that was a lot of money. Christopher Hampton is probably the most successful of the three of them. Just on a objectively critical level, he wrote the play Les Ans d'Angelou, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful piece of work. He wrote the screenplay for Atonement, and he'd also worked with Don Black and Andrew Lloyd Webber. So this is a team that know each other. That I assume have reasonably good working relationship, but I'm not entirely sure that it is creatively successful. Because Dracula the Musical was negatively reviewed and only ran for 154 performances. But it only lost $7.5 million, so it was at least more successful than Dance the Vampire. <laughs> or is it less successful? <laughs> well, Dracula had on stage nudity, so. It's also just. Boring as hell. The thing is, it's actually one of the more faithful adaptations of Dracula we've covered on the show. But it's still not that kind of faithful. <laughs> Would you say which is something about the way the Dracula adaptations are done? To me, this reads like the three of them kind of got bored of reading the book and started skimming and then just watched the Francis Ford Coppola movie. Yeah, it's... One of those ones that filter a Dracula adaptation through the adaptation that the audience is most likely to know. And you can see that all through the visuals of the show. The, the costume and set design is very low-grade Coppola. Because the thing about the Coppola movie is those costumes and those sets and those in-movie effects are stunning. The money, the time, the effort, the creativity that went into them are just insurmountable. And here, it feels so much like it's traced. Like someone's put a piece of paper over it and just kind of copied the outline that they can see. Is it like the Asylum version of it? <laughs> just the Transformers of <laughs> Transformers. Yeah. yeah, except nobody told him, you can just do it the same way, a lot of the same way, because same book and all that. But what, in the moment where you see Dracula, and he's actually introduced pretty quickly in the musical. He has slicked back white hair and the red coat, and it's very close, if not identical, to how Gary Oldman is when you first see him in the contemporary setting Dracula, not the flashback, when Keanu Reeves makes it. But it's not as detailed and it's not as pretty. There's no real oomph for fear or a sense of terror there. Indeed, there's no real mood to the piece at all. The music is not right for this production at all. And I think this is the problem we'll see with the other musical I'm going to talk about soon. The music is just all wrong for the material. To me, the music feels like they're trying to write for the opera. Mm. Which, given that the people who've worked on this musical have worked with Lloyd Webber, doesn't surprise me. No. I wouldn't have minded if they'd gone full Phantom with this. It probably would have been more Yeah, fun. if you're going to do a Dracula, go full Phantom. Go just... Try and make it epic and swooping, but on a musical... A scale of one to phantom. <laughs> I give it a billowing cape. I give it some guy watching a teenage girl through a mirror. <laughs> this could have used more billowing capes, to be honest. More billowing... There's a sense of something. I mean, there's even a moment in the show when Lucy is thinking about her free suitor, and a song called How Do You Choose? 
And she basically admits to just picking the boring one, who has no distinguishable features other than he's boring and I still kind of like him. Like, she was like, yeah, you know, they kind of just gave up. There's no follow-through for any of the character developments. I mean, the plot's mostly the same as the book. John Parker goes to Transylvania to do some legit property deal account, gets trapped there, there's some pride, and then Dracula comes to Whitby and shit goes down. Of course, in this version, there is also Dracula and Mina. Oh. Because, of course, Dracula and Mina have to be in love. And the children even seem to know why it was to do that. I mean, at least for the couple of them, they put in the reincarnation thing. This doesn't really do that. It's kind of like, she seems nice and now I'm... <laughs> this nice guy Dracula, she served him some coffee and he kept coming back to the coffee shop and imagined the whole relationship. <laughs> I mean, this is another thing where it felt very fantastic to me. Because how did he get Mina on the side? Emotional blackmail. Yeah, this really is nice guy Dracula with mundane music, the musical. And frigging. So much frigging. Well, duh. To work with including female characters. Yeah, but it bridges even more than the book. And we've talked about the, the gender relations of the book and ways in which it's underrated and ways which many things are overlooked and such. But here, women are so disposable and it's something that's almost supposed to be admirable, like the way that Mina is treated, for instance. When she eventually has her big seduction with Dracula, her are a little rapey, but she's consenting. And she's consenting simply because she's in love, but we've seen no development. We don't know why she's in love. She basically admits to being in love at first sight. Which, given when she first sees him, is is when he's trying to like use her friend as leverage. Basically, Mina is sleepwalking. Lucy is sleepwalking. And finds Dracula. Dracula basically explains inside Mina's mind. Because that's another totally wonderful essential issue. Well, I really wanted you, but she's here, you know? Which, believe me, guys, doesn't work. No woman's gonna fall for that. <laughs> Is he just trying to nick her? I think so. I mean, he basically does. <laughs> Red pill Dracula. <laughs> I mean, basically begs to this guy, release my friend, she's done nothing wrong, she doesn't deserve this, she deserves a happy life, and she seems to really crave a normal life in this production. And he says, okay, only if you come with me. And she says, no. And he's pissed off at her. He gets really kind of passive-aggressive, I thought. Well, it's Dracula. Passive-aggressive is kind of a, a thing. Once but, again, Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, but this is, like, you know, nice guy Dracula. <laughs> if he stalks a woman long enough, she'll love him. But even Dracula's arc in the story is almost identical to Eric's Phantom. Basically, he realises, hey, She's got emotions too. It turns out being a dick all your life doesn't pay off. <laughs> Almost sounds like a John Green subversion of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. <laughs> Dream Girl, you know, she's a person with actual feelings and motivations, and that's and the I entire was, moral of the story. I was really kind of baffled by how bland it was, but then again, we've seen enough adaptations of this story to know it's really easy to just beige up. I just sort of gave up halfway through listening through one version and went off to listen to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which also has <laughs> the same guy. 
Yeah, the guy they picked to play Dracula in this had just come off um, playing um, Dr. Frankenfurter in the Rocky Horror Revival. He's a really good rank, by the way. Yeah, so they have people with, like, talent in this thing, but... Oh, yeah, the original Broadway production had an incredible cast. It had Kelly O'Hara in it before she became a really big star. And also Drew Tharrick was in a production. When it hit Germany, they did a lot of rewrites. They brought in um, Thomas Borchett and Drew Sarek, both of whom would go on to play Graf von Krolock, both of whom had also played The Phantom. And then the studio cast recording of um, Dracula from 2011 has Norm Lewis as Van Helsing, who also played The Phantom. It's like, we just just get a lot of phantoms. It'll be fine. It's It's like being in the sugar babe. Everyone's done it. I will say there is an element of this show that I actually I didn't like, but I appreciated, which I, I thought that they did Renfield pretty solidly. Renfield is pretty hard to do. Um, but yeah, if, but if mean, you tend to get him, you tend to get him right. But most people just don't get anywhere near it. Well, most people tend to go for the he was driven mad by Dracula angle, whereas in the book he was already He's... severely mentally ill man in the asylum. This version that tip too. So yeah. it is faithful. It's not especially progressive from a mental health perspective. I've yet to see a Dracula that does that. If you can recommend one, send it my way. It sticks with the original interpretation of the modern that we view from a modern thing is how mental people with mental health issues tend to be victims rather than perpetrators, despite the image that they get in media. And that is the you know in the original book. He's a guy who's being abused for his mental health issues, not believed and things like that. Whereas most of the time he's like, he met Dracula, went crazy. Yay. When we do the, when we do our episode on the Coppola movie, we'll go into the, that's the most prominent offender of this trend. At least the most mainstream. Well, the Coppola movie tends to be the most mainstream offender for a lot of things because it's, (laughs) it's the most mainstream thing. Therefore, everything gets an idea from it because that's the new public consciousness. Well, you can see that all over the Wild Horn musical easily. It feels so much like the shaded area in the Venn diagram of, hey, people like Dracula and people like Phantom. So let's just do something completely shitty. Um, Let's just miss the point of both of those pieces of material. Yeah. Well, things like the the Mina romance or reincarnation or Renfield was driven crazy by Dracula... Uh, so strong in the public consciousness, yet like Igor, not actually in the book. Yes. Igor referring to Frankenstein, not Dracula. I mean, if you told people... What? It's pronounced Igor. Uh, I don't know, I've only read the book. You've never seen Young Frankenstein? (laughs) No. No. Oh my god. Well, I'm sure as hell not going to watch the um, Daniel Radcliffe movie. Why would you do that? (laughs) To get drunk and mock it. Okay, but don't don't give money to that man. No. No. I will say there was an element of, of the Wild Horn musical I found oddly fascinating, which is when Lucy stings about her suitors. Because she has these wonderful moments of, oh, Quincy has a big hat, and he's so charming. And yeah, like she <laughs> Everything's bigger in Texas, huh? Womp womp. But then she talks about Stuart, and he's incredibly intelligent, and Doctor, he's ambitious. And then she gets to Arthur, and it's like, he's boring. Like, she literally says, he's boring. He, Even Arthur says, I'm boring. 
Oh, sad thing, because I really like Arthur Homewood. But he actually does stuff in this production. Mm. Like, often he sort of shoves the side. He's, he's, actually he's, he's the rich tosser. Yeah. Come on, you couldn't even go, well, he's rich. Quincy is also rich. And I mean, Seward has like his whole, asi- has a whole asylum. Oh, every girl loves that. <laughs> no, but I do. Oh, pre- you've got the dunking chamber for the insane. That's so wonderful. Wow, it's big enough. It has a whole separate quarter for the women. <laughs> so progressive. It is really it's not much. How, how Lucy in particular is fridged and the way that she's kind of exposed like a toy. Which I, you could argue is Luke, but here I feel it's hammered them a little more because she's misused by Dracula Black Novena. So the thing that the show differs from with the book, where it really does diverge, although you could argue that it's actually pretty faithful, is the treatment of Van Helsing. In If you read the book, it's hinted at, not very explicitly, but there are moments where you hear about that Van Helsing either has a wife or had a wife, and something very tragic happened to her. Either that she died or institutionalized. Here, we get a full song about how she was killed by the vampires and it's by the vampire Dracula. Because you've got to tie it in somehow, I'm guessing, because he can't just be a guy who hugs vampires. He has to be a guy who hugs vampires for vengeance. Yeah, man can't have a hobby. <laughs> you can just do DIY. Dead at yourself. The song is really <laughs> dull. It's called Roseanne. And the moment you hear that title, you immediately just start singing Roxanne from the police. I just imagine Roseanne Barr, so he was married to Rose. <laughs> that gives it a whole other angle, doesn't it? Yep. But this is the thing, it's kind of exemplary of what the musical does and why it does it so badly, which is it attempts to kind of fill in the gap, pad out the running time, whatever you think. Kind of just, just fall flat. They aren't even spectacular failures, they're just flat. There's no real sense of the boot of peace here. They, they don't want to go wildly camp, but they don't seem to want to embrace the the melodrama of the kind of romance that they're seeking. People forget Coppola's Dracula is really melodramatic. I mean, Winona Ryder is acting for her life in that. I mean, people complain about her being OTT and Stranger Things. It's what she does, guys. Well, somebody's got to, you know, act for two when it comes to Keanu. Oh, poor Keanu. That accent, man. But, like, it wasn't much like Anthony Hopkins in that movie when he's playing Van Helsing. He's having the time of his life. And everyone in this production, at least what we were watching, seemed very stagnant. It's a stagnant production overall, I felt. You're just getting through it. Yeah. A lot of people have tried to be Phantom. Because it's the most successful long-running musical on Broadway ever. I mean, there's a reason it's still running, regardless of whether or not you like the show. It resonates with enough people that they want to go see it. Yeah, but there's that show had effort put into it. I mean, that's got the falling chandelier, the gondola, the candle, the electric guitar. You know, there is some just that title song. Yes, that we've it... all hummed that at some point. Yeah. Even when you're watching the movie, you're like, you still get caught up in that because that's what you've been waiting for. You've been waiting to see yes. that. You know, they, they really went for it in that movie. But I don't think anyone here is going for it. And that's what gets me is, 
I think Frank Wildhorn was going for it with Jekyll Hyde, or at least Hasselhoff was. <laughs> yeah. I've not seen a lot of his stuff. I've seen stuff of Wonderland, which is just straight up abhorrent. I believe one critic described it as contemptible. <laughs> <laughs> Another critic I really like, Adam Feldman from Time Out New York, his review called it blabber wacky. Oh no. Womp womp. So it doesn't give me hope for the death note musical, let's put it that way. Yeah. Actually, I think the Dracula musical has a lot in common with the next musical we're going to talk about. So why don't you introduce that? Okay, so there have been a lot of Dracula musicals because if you're going to write a vampire musical, one of your first thoughts is going to be, well, why don't we do a Dracula musical? Because we won't have to pay for the rights. It's in the public consciousness so much that even people who haven't seen or read Dracula could probably tell you at least the basics of Dracula. Yeah. There's a vampire, there's some British people. Even then, everything else references it. So, like, there's been a Czech musical, there was Dracula the musical, Dracula the musical, one has a comma, one has a (laughs) colon. There's two French language ones um, that basically have very similar titles. They're like, you know, they all like to call themselves like Dracula. Love and death, or something like some sort of love and death pun. There's a French language one, and then there's a French language one from Quebec. Exactly. Dracula is in everything. There's apparently a. Is it coming? I've just seen. I'm just looking at the list of it on Wikipedia. Okay, so unreleased, so it's not coming up. There's like just Dracula, Dracula everywhere. Dracula everywhere. Like there are Dracula pinball machines. I love that there's a whole segment on the Dracula Wikipedia just for the pinball machines. There's three of them. It's just such an ubiquitous property, you know? Everyone's at least going to have a go at it. I mean, this is the reason that Universal are trying to sort of Marvel Avengers up their old monster series, which is why we're getting a new Mummy movie with Tom Cruise. We're probably going to end up getting Jekyll and Hyde with Russell Crowe, oh dear lord. And then we got that terrible... Um, Dracula movie, Dracula Untold, <laughs> which is really bad, by the way. We will get to an episode on that one day because I have lots of opinions. <laughs> we but always like, have lots of opinions. People are going to ask, why didn't you do a Dracula movie or a Drac? You know, why isn't that like Dracula? Because it's the baseline. And so, as we said, there's several musicals, including a chamber musical. Which are you familiar with chamber musicals? Vaguely, it's not really my specialty. I yeah, not my musical, specialty. Musical. Specialty either. It's sort of you know more emphasis on the singing in a smaller thing, smaller orchestra, smaller set piece. So this is a very minimal musical. A few objects to give you the the bed or the coffin or whatever. All lovely, lovely costumes, amazing hair. There's a ginger Jonathan Harker. So it's a very stripped-down musical. It's no epic fire sequences or massive cast. There's only the very minimum cast. Like, seriously, seven people. They've cut out many characters that were in the book. There's only one suitor. It's only Jack Seward. So there's no Homewood, no Quincy. And it changes the plot a bit. I give it props for not including the meaner romance. I take away I those props. Have to give it props for that. They shouldn't be including that crap in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I give it props for not having the meaner romance. It's a Lucy romance. 
but it loses the props for going in the, well, you killed my girlfriend, I'm going to kill yours plotline. It's very, very minimal, about an hour and a half. It starts off pretty close. Jonathan goes to Transylvania to deal with the Carfax purchase with Dracula. He meets the brides. Bad things happen, Dracula leaves. And then it starts to get a bit different. Dracula sees a picture of Lucy and Mina, asks who the beautiful woman is, and Jonathan's like, oh, that's my Mina, because of course the beautiful woman is his fiance. So, points for him, even though Lucy's sort of meant to be the prettier one, isn't she? But Dracula's like, no, 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 the other one. Oh, that's Lucy, her friend. And Dracula falls head over heels in love with Lucy. There may be some hints, I think, of um, past loves or something like that. They really sing about it later. And he goes to England to see this beautiful girl in the photograph and seduce her and make her his bride. Because apparently three isn't enough. But that's more of a, an issue with, you know, original story. Yeah, but he's more of a predatory figure here, just outright. There's no real tragic romance to it. It is more like the book in that aspect, which, you know, praise be. He's very, very predatorial in this. I mean, he also has, you know, the big epic love songs with Lucy, but he pretty much is there to take what he wants. There is the classic turning. Lucy gets sick. Seward calls for Van Helsing. Van Helsing's like, oh, vampire, vampire, we gotta kill her. Seward can't do it, so Jonathan does this. Jonathan actually returns from Transylvania not without any of his PTSD or any other issues, as in the book or other movies. He comes back pretty much ready for action. Which feels a really like a really convenient character beat for plotting more than anything else. Yeah, because they've trimmed out the other characters, so Seward no longer has his other support dudes. So they need someone to really pick up and do things where he failed. And because Harker has killed Dracula's love, Dracula's like, well, I'm going to kill yours. Fair's fair. And thus we get the reason why Mina was chosen. That's where it sort of separates more from the book and the previous films. He seduces Mina. There's a bit where he, like, rips open his shirt as if he's Fabio on a romance novel cover. He does. I am not joking. All in favor of that, I ain't complaining. <laughs> like, oh, right, that's good. You know, that's the type of thing where you start paying more attention. And then there's a chase to defeat um, Dracula by exposing him to sunlight. Yep, they've gone with the Dracula is destroyed by sunlight trope. Which, if you know anything about vampires, which is, of course, while you're listening to this podcast, you know that Dracula was not destroyed by sunlight. And that's okay, basically... Convenient beat for the story. It's a trim down in a lot of senses. Which, when you compare it to the other shows that we're talking about, is a really admirable thing to do. There are other ones that really could have used the trimming. With, like I said, a garden shear. The music is a lot more enjoyable. It works better musically. The tone of the music fits a story like Dracula. I actually found myself following along with the music a lot more. I couldn't sing along because these guys were like way out of my musical league. But you could really follow along with the music. You're like, yep, you know what beats are coming and what lyrics are coming and things like that. So musically, it's stronger. Story-wise, it's stronger because it actually makes some choices. But it still relies on the killing the woman as revenge storyline, which is never fun to see. Yeah, I hate how we're kind of used to that. Rape culture sucks, guys. Yeah, it's never, you kill my girlfriend, so I'm going to gut you. It's... 
I'm going to make you suffer the same pain as me. It's the emotional manipulation of the protagonist rather than the actual equal suffering of them. It's like the father who kills the children to punish the wife. You know, the worst punishment is not that I hurt you the same way that the person, other person was hurt, but that you will live knowing it. Also, it was interesting, they refer to him as a Nosferatu, and as you all know, the movie Nosferatu that really put that word into the public consciousness came after Dracula and was a Dracula ripoff. So it's always interesting when that sort of thing comes in. It's the weird cannibalizing of itself. Dracula's pretty familiar with if you look at the history of it in adaptations in pop culture. Yeah. This also has an appearance by Renfield, who has some pretty big musical numbers, or at least appears in other people's musical numbers. What did you think of the Renfield in this? Um, pretty solid. But then again, I think solid is really the way that I kind of talk about the show in general. It's certainly, out of the ones that we're talking about, the most complete piece of work. Probably because it's trimmed a lot of the fat. Some of the fat, I would argue, is necessary, but at least it doesn't... It's not glaring when it's missing here. So the character beats in that sense. There's a very simple motivation or drive behind each of them, and they just get on with it. I mean, there is a plot, but it's almost not about the plot. There's very strong emphasis on the relationships between the characters... You can really feel that Seward and Lucy are together and they compare that with um, Jonathan and Mina. They have a great big love song about how they will protect each other and it's from both sides. So the the men say, I, sing I will shelter you and the women sing I will shelter you rather than I will be sheltered, which I appreciated. Amazing how such a simple thing is I will protect you from both genders, both halves of a couple rather than just I will protect you, thanks. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about doing this show, is you end up kind of lowering your expectations for Dracula stuff in particular quite a bit. (laughs) I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. I mean, a lot of stuff that goes on here is really good. Yeah, music... But it it didn't have to be good, that's the thing. It's a very small piece, like, it's one that's just sort of shown at various festivals, not too much, but it's not a Broadway piece. But it's not intended to be. No. No. So maybe this is something that can only work in a smaller scale? Yeah, it's something that you'd go to and there'd just be a small theatre. There'd be a few dozen people in the audience, maybe. It's intimate, the whole thing. There's no grand set. It's very small space. No big sets, no company. It's just the characters. There's no extras compared to, say, Dracula or Lestat or Tanz the Vampire. <laughs> I think what this show does really well is highlight the strengths of peering things down, of going a smaller route. The thing about Broadway is I think there's a pressure to go big. The average Broadway musical costs between 12 and $15 million to mount, and 75% of those shows will not break even. Ooh, ouch. So when you hear about a hit like Hamilton, one of the reasons people are so enamoured with Hamilton is because Hamilton's making money. Hand over fit, it made back its investment in less than a year, which is practically unheard of. One of the reasons that we remember flops so well is because of the money and the hubris that went into it. But nobody goes into this hoping to make a bad thing. Nobody ever makes anything hoping to make a bad thing. You know, that's not how it works. But as is the case of musicals, musicals require a particular skill and tone that can be incredibly hard to do. Yeah, you need to find the right one for the story. Yes. So they strip down very 
semi-operatic nature of the the songs and the voices works really well with Dracula. It's got an old school feel about it. It's got a very time period to it. And Which the- is something that Dracula the Musical and Lestat do not have. Dracula musical tries to go sort of more rock opera, but it doesn't have the way that the Phantom musical manages to work that in. Then you talk about Phantom with the the rock music invading the opera house with the presence of the Phantom. Yes. That big title number starts in with the the guitars and everything. It's like, whoom, this is the strange genius of the Phantom. It's so different from the standard music. Yeah, and also Phantom was part of a particular boom in Broadway musicals of the big 80s blockbuster that primarily came from Britain. You know, people often sort of overlook this, but in the history of Broadway, there was a period where Broadway in New York was practically going bankrupt. And these theatres were lying empty and shows weren't making any money. And it was one of the shows that changed that was Evita, the Andrew Lloyd Webber Tim Rice musical about Ava Perot, which is still my favourite Lloyd Webber piece. It's a massively problematic piece. It's basically like fascism. What's that? <laughs> but it made so much money. And then other shows that came afterwards continued to make money. Cats was another example. Les Mis, which is produced by Cameron McIntosh, is was obviously a huge hit. And Phantom of the Opera, which opened in 1986 and is still running. And there's a reason it's still running. And I think people kind of underplay the scale of what it does. I mean, I'm not a wild fan of the, the piece myself. I much prefer the book. But it does this very specific thing, which is to play this story, which the book is a trashy, pulp, horror, crime novel. And the musical plays it as gothic romance and does it really well. There is a reason that pretty much every teenage girl I know has read at least one piece of Phantom of the Opera fan fiction. Guilty as charged. So I understand why there is a, a desire to replicate that success. I think that time has passed. I don't think we make musicals like that anymore. And for good reason, because even Andrew Lloyd Webber doesn't make musicals like that anymore. It took him until last year to finally get another hit of Broadway. And even then, he had to go the route of where everyone else is going and adapt a previously known film, which in this case was Full of Rock. So cut to 2006 and Elton John Bernie Tobin have an idea to ad- adapt a very famous series by one of the best-selling authors of all time given their own track it should have worked right it's one of those things you're like I don't see a problem here you've got respected musician with a name who also has successes um, in musical theatre Ada in all sorts the of lying the lying king yeah the lying king and it's just Elton John you're like okay yep good it's probably one of those things they almost did sight unseen it's like oh Elton John's doing an adaptation of one of the best-selling books yeah I feel like his pitch him and Bernie Tobin was just like we wrote Candle in the Wind here's your money (laughs) it wasn't just him and Bernie Tobin who's his longtime uh writing partner it's also Linda Wolverton who is a screenwriter and playwright who's best known for a little movie called Beauty and the Beast and the musical that followed which was also the first of Disney theatricals entries into Broadway. And it was a hit, but it wasn't a hit in the way that The Lion King became a hit. Yeah. And people kind of forget that. The stage production of, of Beauty and the Beast is essentially the movie put on stage, but with more songs. Like the costumes are identical, the sets are identical. Here's that Lion King on Broadway, which I have seen because it came to Edinburgh 
And it's so beautiful. They gave that to Julie Taymor, and Julie Taymor was best known for being a more avant-garde director. And it's basically basically the film on stage, but with a little more music and a little more, you know, script. But the staging is spectacular. And I think that was the first time Disney realized, you know, we can just spin money this way. So Linda Wolverton is a reliable hand. Maybe not so much now, because she won't both be Tim Burton, Alice in Wonderland, and the sequel, Alice through the Looking Glass. And um, Maleficent. But Maleficent made money. Yeah, true. I don't like Maleficent. I think it screws over that character and adds a really creepy rape subtext. But it made money. Alice in Wonderland made money too. She's working with one of the most famous singer-songwriters of all time. Off a very popular so, book series that had a really successful and powerful movie. And one of the biggest selling book series of all time. So, <laughs> once again, this all seems like money in the bank, even with this history of, haven't vampire musicals all done really badly? Yeah, but this was Lestat. And this was also three years after Anne Rice said she wasn't going to write vampires anymore because she was dedicating her writings to Jesus. So, I think fans, there was maybe an assumption that fans would be hungry for this. No pun intended. Which I understand. I actually don't hate the idea of a Lestat musical. I mean, considering he was a rock star in the books, right? Well, that's the thing. If you read the books, the vampire Lestat and Queen of the Dam, he is a rock star. And the music he makes, I believe it's Anne Rice, she described it as being akin to Jim Morrison with the Doors, which is very 60s, 70s, kind of trippy, hippie rock with a really pretentious edge, pretentious done right. You know, Jim Morrison inspired fervent cult of devotion, which which goes on to this day. So that makes sense to make him that kind of rock star, and not like Creed or Korn as they do in the movie. So here's the thing: you'd think with someone like Elton John and all these other people in high, the music would at least be good. That the flaws would come from the source material when it comes to story, but most of the songs in Lestat are—I don't even remember them. This thing is, there's nothing even terrible. They're just kind of there. Yeah, there's a few songs that are better that I still that I actually paid attention to or hum along or like, but none of them, none of them are sung by Lestat. When your show is called Lestat and none of the songs for him are interesting or sing-alongable or... <laughs> sing-alongable, is that the official term? Sure, why not? But that is a problem in the sense that when your show is called Lestat, and Lestat is the least interesting thing about it, the Phantom of the Opera is not the least interesting thing about the Phantom of the Opera. So you have a problem coming out of the gate. You also have a problem which is I don't think that anyone involved is necessarily wild about source material or doesn't seem to understand its appeal. You've got a good cast of actors. Like, you've got Hugh Pinero, who played the Phantom on Broadway for a long time and pro- seems to still think he's playing the Phantom. That could be a blast. <laughs> yeah, Lestat is just sort of moping around and brooding and basically everything we yelled at Louis for doing in Interview with a Vampire. <laughs> yeah. You spent a lot of this show going, oh, shut up, Lestat. <laughs> exactly. And not because, you know, he's being a jerk or anything. It's like, this is why he had no time for some of Louis' bullshit in an interview. I've been there, done that, and you can't do it as well as me. 
<laughs> my mother already told me off for this. <laughs> and then she dumped me. I will say, I don't think the acting lets the piece down. Carly Carmella is wonderful in this show. Yeah, so this Lestat is... The first half is the Lestat backstory. The, it's how he pretty got... much the stuff that's explained in the Prince Lestat. Yeah. No, not the Prince Lestat, the Vampire Lestat. And then the second half is interview. And the second half is the stronger piece, stronger half for me. The characters... It's more complete. Yeah, it's more complete. The characters don't disappear after one song. The plot is stronger, plus it's probably more recognisable for the audience. Uh, the first half is generally something bad happens to Lestat or someone he cares about. Someone Lestat cares about leaves and or dies. Lestat is sad. Lestat meets someone new. And this is the thing, is because they're adapting this from the vampire Lestat, there's more going on in that book than just his backstory. So there is kind of, you know, picking at bits and pieces and putting them together, and it feels maddeningly incomplete. Yeah. Just overall, even with the interview with the vampire stuff, which is just the story in interview, it's not the interview itself. There's no Daniel here, we should say. Actually, there's a lot of people who are not in this, which I understand. You have to pare this down quite significantly make a story out of it. But even then, it feels like there's so much missing. At least Act 2 is, Lestat does a thing, there are consequences to that thing. There is response to the consequences of the thing. Rather and than... yet the story feels so much weirder and, well, even not interesting weird, just blander because it's not from Louis's point of view. Like, say we want about Louis, and we did. <laughs> but Lestat <laughs> is so much more enthralling when he's told from someone else's point of view. It's not even necessarily that we hear the backstory here. The backstory shouldn't make him dull. He's already dull before the backstory kicks in. His mother is more interesting than him. His mother is pretty badass, actually. Yeah, his mother really just shows him up. The moment she gets her first song, she's already kicking it. And then once she becomes a vampire, she's just like... She commits. He immediately decides, well, I'm not going to wear dresses anymore, and I'm just going to kill everyone. It's going to be awesome! And I'm the time of my life, and I'm possibly going to fuck my son. I don't know. I'm going to make him think he has a chance with me. But he doesn't because <laughs> I'm way out of his league. He really is. <laughs> yeah, just to sum up the story for those who haven't read the Vampire Chronicles or seen this, and the thing is, we really shouldn't have seen this because there's actually no cast recording of this. So let's actually talk about... We, we should talk a little bit about what the plot of this story is for those who are unfamiliar with the Vampire Chronicles or have only watched or read an interview. Yep, you're the more story familiar. Is, it's basically the story of Lestat. Extremely pared down, a lot of the background characters cut out. It's his story from just before he is turned into a vampire to the end of interview, but without the interview itself. And in this case, it's reasonable, reasonably honest to the book. Once again, so much has been cut out, but you get the basics, which is Lestat is from an impoverished aristocratic family. You don't see his dad in this version. His dad is out of the picture, whereas you actually see him in the book quite infamously. He goes to live in Paris with his friend, Nicholas. Friend? His pal, his buddy, his... Heterosexual life partner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll 
credit to this musical, it actually explicitly states the queerness of the material. It doesn't just hop around it. Like, men kiss in this. Yeah, it's gay, but still not gay enough. Which is odd, yeah, because it's yeah. more gay than most things you actually see <laughs> on these things in Broadway. And yet, there's big, like, kind of song where it's revealed that there are love characters called The Bugs and the Bears, and it's and so unsexy, which is another major problem with this show. But Lestat is attacked by a vampire called Magnus, who turns him into a vampire, and then Magnus immediately kills himself. It's a real and douche move. It's such a dick move. I need to know someone knows that I've died. You'll do. <laughs> Basically, he's haunted by this in a way. He's not wild about it. And decides to turn his mother, Gabrielle, into a vampire because she's already dying anyway. And she is immediately like, yes, yes, let's do this. Let's kill everyone. They meet up with the vampire Armand, who in the books is a 16-year-old redhead. Here he's played by perennial blood-sucking feminist favourite Drew Tharnik. And it's the best thing about it, for reasons other than being played by Drew Tharnik. <laughs> He commits. And they basically team up with him and his gang of kind of but not really satanic vampires. Like, they drop that quite quickly. Yeah. And they decide to become an acting troupe, which they decide really quickly as well. They're like, we need to work. Let's be actors. Okay. Lestat sort of shows up and is like the, the new guy who shows up at school and is really, really cool, so everyone falls in line behind him, and the previous popular kid, Armand, is just not happy. Yeah, theoretically. He's nowhere near interesting enough for that. That's sort of the vibe, and the, but the audience can't understand why this new guy is so popular. Yes. Eventually, they find Nicholas, Lestat's friend. Man friend. Lestat, <laughs> his man friend. And Lestat decides to make him into a vampire, which is a bad move because it immediately sends him to a catatonic state. So... Lestat decides he needs to go and find Marius, who is our man's maker, because he will know what to do for some reason. They spend about a decade looking for him, in which time Gabrielle basically says to Lestat, you're boring me, I'm going off to explore the world with someone who gives a shit. Like, the mother issues in this thing are astounding, guys. So, not only is Lestat alone because his mother has dumped him, Nicholas finally tries to speak and asks to be killed. Like, there's a lot of dick moves going on in this show. So then we get to Act 2. We get some scenes with Marius basically being, I figured, no help. He just says, you know, I couldn't have done anything. You should go do something with your life. So Luke Lestat goes to America, and then we kick into Interview the Vampire, because he meets Louis, makes him a vampire, and then they go off and have their 2.1 children life together with Claudia. It's like some weird reverse, um, I need to find myself, so I'm going to go backpacking in Europe kind of thing. <laughs> we don't really even get so much of Lestat just having fun with Louis' estate, which is some of the more fun bits with Interview, where he's just like, hey, you've got money and a nice house, let's go dance. Yeah. Like, the frat boy who will not leave your guest room. So, they, I mean, they almost immediately move into family like Claudia which I think that was just because they needed to introduce the most complete character in the story, who has a, a relatively short narrative. She's only in that book. But it's uh, an impactful big, narrative. Yeah, the impactful one. Uh, she gets the big Disney princess number. She wants so much more from this provincial life than those fucking bread rolls. 
Um, and then they eventually, Claudia tries to kill him. Lestat is really apologetic, I felt. Yeah. Like, he's a bastard in the book, and he's fun because he's a bastard. Here, he's just so... Oh. It's like, why did you hate... What did I do to make you hate me? And eventually, Lestat, who's kind of broken, sad, and stole Louis, uh, goes off to Paris to go back with his acting troupe to return to Armand and finds out that Louis and Claudia are there. Coincidences. And, yeah, and since Armand is a real stickler for the rules, the big rule being it's a sin to kill your kind, this is why they killed Claudia. She didn't successfully kill one of her own kind, so they killed her successfully. Ah, semantics. That story beat makes so little sense when you put the stat back in it, by the way. Yeah. Probably one of the better musical numbers, though. Because it's a big Disney princess number. The To Kill Your Kind. Oh, To Kill Your Kind is... No, To Kill Your Kind's pretty. It's okay. Yeah. Like, I'm great. It's a really low, low bar, guys. It's because stuff is actually happening and there's like it's actually an ensemble piece rather yeah. than just Lestat whining. So Claudia dies, Lestat leaves. Uh, I was actually sad that his big number wasn't called Dick Move. <laughs> I thought Louis would have earned it. And then we get the rooftop scene of sad Lestat and then the best song in the, the show, which is after all this time, where Lestat, where Armand is just like, seriously, you're still sad and you've learned none of your lessons. You should just hang out with me. And then we can kiss. And then they kiss. And then they argue and he gets thrown off a roof. <laughs> it's like, I kissed you. Why don't you appreciate that? And then basically Lestat is lying broken legs on the ground. It's ready to die as the sun comes up. And then Marius and his mum return and say, you know, you, you should, you know, keep going. And that's how we get the end, which is Lestat in modern clothes. And he says, I am the vampire Lestat and I will live forever. They didn't, because this show closed after a month. This musical was basically Vampire Lawangst, the musical. <laughs> but it's not even fun angst. Like, even when I'm complaining about Louis being angsty, there's a beautiful melodrama consistency in his piece. Yeah, it, it fits the story and the thing, you know, basically all this bad stuff is happening and he's sad about it, whereas Lestat is like, eh. Mm. Whatever. And then wanders off. The thing about this show is a lot was cut. It was originally, it had a pre-Broadway triad in San Francisco. San Francisco feels like the right place to do this Seriously. Not just because that's where the book ends. But a lot was cut out. Numbers were cut, things were jiggled around, characters were moved. The show that the vampires perform in the show the final version is about Marius and Armand. In the original, it was about Pina Kasha, who is of course Pina's dam. She's not mentioned in the show at all. Which I understand, once again, you got to pare it down. Yeah, and. But as a result, it feels like there's a lot of holes. There's a lot of, like, trying to tape over the holes to kind of fix it, and nothing is fixed. It's barely hanging together. Yeah, it just feels really empty in a lot of places. You'd so think there'd be. Yeah, like, there's very few pieces with an ensemble. Which does make sense because it's about, you know, the three of them or the two of them or the one. But sometimes you want to have people in the background doing stuff. That's the thing is this show cost $12 million, which now is the average, but back then was a real big budget. And this looks cheap. The special effects are shite. 
the burning sequences have like you know fire in front of the guy who's burning but if you're on any sort of angle to the stage you just <laughs> see this guy standing there <laughs> it's hilarious he's just sort of waving his arm around like ah i'm melting i'm melting the melting scene in wizard of oz looks better than this it's just really half-assed yeah, it's half-assed and trying desperately to be phantom, but doesn't really want to commit to any of the emotion or tragedy. It's just kind of like, uh... Dracula the Musical is just mediocre white guy thinking he's better than he is. Dracula the Chamber Musical is this talent, this skill, but no one will ever really appreciate it, and it's not really the right audience. And it's not a money spinner. It's not a money spinner, so... And then Lestat is... Tries, but doesn't try enough. Is it trying? Is it? Some people are trying. I think Carly Carmel is trying. Her voice is beautiful. Yeah, she is on point. Hupanero is still trying to be the Phantom. He's still trying to be dramatic and serious. I've never seen any sort of production or recordings or whatever of Hupanero playing the Phantom. How does he play him? I have no idea. I've never actually seen him. I just know that he played it for years. Yeah, I'm assuming that there is just sort of a comfort to him playing that character and he thought of maybe kind of bringing it here. Yeah. He has done other roles. I mean, he's dimly men and things like that. But, you know, the Phantom is a role that tends to carry the, the trademark of whatever actor's playing him. So if you watch Ramin Karim Lou playing him, he's very, you know, tortured and emotional and I have feelings. Lewis <laughs> playing him, that, who is an actor who is quite a bit older than Sierra Loggins, and, and he'd already played her dad, Little Mermaid, so there's a very paternal angle there. And also, as the only uh, black actor to play that role in Broadway, I think there were certainly fears about things you could and could not do. You know, you couldn't have the first black phantom being, you know, traditionally as creepy and rapey as the phantom is towards the very young white ingenue. Yes. There's more of the sort of empathetic edge to that character. Because yeah. he's totally not a stand-in for Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Here we go. Hugh Pinero, he was the, the Phantom in 99. Then he was the Phantom 2003 to 2005. And thus came straight off that to playlist at. Um, and then he came back to Phantom in 2010 to 2013. Then 2013 to 2014. So it's like his thing. This is what he does. This is like the really reliable temp job you can go to in between all the other stuff you're doing. <laughs> we need a phantom. Is Hugh available? To his credit, I, I mean, I like Hugh Pinar. There's a wonderful Broadway.com interview he does where he's talking about the role and he's talking about the amount of times he's played him. And he says, I left it to do a show called Lestat. Huge hit. And then he quietly goes, no, it wasn't. Lestat, the musical, doesn't seem to find its tone and therefore the actors don't really know its tone. And it's dull. And the, yeah, they're trying to play it serious. Except for Drew, who's like, I'm the vampire musical expert here. Let me just show you how it's done. Because, step aside. Yeah, step aside. Grafron Krolox here. Step aside five is a tennis singing. <laughs> no, seriously. There is a reason why Drew Sarek is sort of our mascot. He was in Dracula the Musical, the German language version, as we mentioned earlier. He was Grafron Krolox and Tanz the Vampire. And not only was he Armand in this, he took over the role of Lestat at the end, and he'd also played Laurent in the San Francisco version. So that's, what, five vampire roles? 
Let's like five more vampire roles than most of Broadway. I think the only role he seems to have played more is Judas Iscariot in Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> The thing is, there, there was no reason for this to be as dull as it is. It's nowhere near as melodramatic as it could have been. Actually, I wish this was camper. It may not have lasted long on Broadway, but at least there would have been something to, if you'll abuse the pun, get your teeth into. Seriously, it's, you you want for a vampire musical what you want is you can go dressed up or gothy to. Yeah, I mean, this could have gone full Rocky Heart. It really should have. Because, I mean, considering how dedicated the fan base is to the Vampire Chronicles. And still is to this day. They should have just performed it in New Orleans. But the thing is, there are interesting story elements at play here. I mean, for, obviously we're biased. The general arc of vampirism is really interesting. The fact that Lestat is alive through so many periods of history offers a lot of potential. The rules of the vampire society don't kill your own kind don't reveal yourself to the humans how do you find a way to live in this world where you aren't alive what do you do for employment what do you do for living that kind of thing there's a lot here that you could have done and even just the basic interactions of the characters having this character whose main companion is his mother there's a lot you could explore there then you have the, the fluidity of their sexuality. There's a lot you can do there. This this story seriously needed an antagonist, and it doesn't have one. There's no driving force for Lestat to oppose except his own feelings, and his own feelings aren't interesting enough to oppose. Yeah, Armand tries, but he's more a case of, well, you, you messed up, now here's the consequences. I told you about that now. Deal. He's kind of like your mother standing at your door tapping the toe going, well, 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 who was right? There's no sensuality to this piece at all. For a, a, a musical that has as much explicitly queer content as this one, that has a weird incestuous edge and has actual kissing on stage, it's so sexless. Yeah, again, the closest thing is Armand's action towards Lestat in his I told you so music number, musical number. I almost buy that kiss, but even then there's no heat. Mm-hmm. And it sorely needs heat because that series is built on the interpersonal passions of the vampires and the people who desperately want to be vampires. And as I said, there's none of that. When the closest you get to heat is the incest. <laughs> and that's because the, the mother is pretty much acting for the two of them. She's giving it her all. I mean, she earned her Tony nomination here. Yeah, that's the thing. She got a Tony nomination. So the show's costumes, which, eh, I mean, when you do period costuming, it's kind of a given that you're going to get a nomination. But there are only certain things that sort of try. Gabrielle's actress tries. Claudia's actress tries. Um, Armand's actor tries. But then again, he's used to weird vampire camp, so whatever. But Lestat is just whining. And there's only so long that you can stand that before you get sick of it. I mean, even Louis stopped whining for a while. I think they just the, need... la- the lack of heat is what does it in for me because you could have done this with heat. There is a very famous stage production of Dracula that was done in the seventies with Frank Langella, which is also a movie, and he talks about 
doing that production on Broadway and getting letters from guys saying, you know what, we went to see your show, and then my wife came back home with me, and oh my god, we had an amazing night. We named the child after you. The 79 movie, which I hope we do an episode on one day, because it's really Just fascinating. Just make a list. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, that movie is so strange, but it's really sexy. Considering it's freaking Frank Langella, he totally gets why that's a character that a lot of women are into. That story itself is just bizarre. Like, the sex scene was literally shot by one of the guys that makes the opening credit for Bond movies. Well, that sort of would do it, wouldn't it? Yeah. But like you said, there's a precedent for doing sexy Dracula on stage. Or at least doing some sort of heat. Yeah, I just googled Um, Frank Langella Dracula and I'm like, even just in the pictures, I I see it. Yes, exactly, right? Oh, I I can't wait to watch that movie. We've got so much to talk about. (laughs) The hair alone, like. I just look at the picture of them lying in the leaves with the cloak. But that's the thing, is like, Panaro is a handsome man. He's really charismatic if you watch interviews with him. And he's really good looking for his age, too. He's like 50-something now? He is aging so well. But there's none of that on stage here. And everyone is also wearing the worst wigs ever. These are some of the wiggiest wigs. It's just terrible. All that money and they... Where did it go? Elton John's beach house? (laughs) Maybe. Because there's not much in the way of sets. Sets are really not there. Clearly they didn't spend it on the burning special effects. (laughs) But this is the thing, the most expensive musical of all time is Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, which costs $75 million. And if you've ever seen that production or you've seen clips of it, a lot of that show looks really cheap. But you can see where the money went because there's a lot of flying effects, for instance. There's nothing like that here. There's no flying vampires. I wish there was. There's a really obvious sequence where Marius just sort of comes in on the wires that's it. And it's like, wow, that is just... But it's never mentioned again. It's never really... Why is it there? It's like, well, we've got these wires lying around. You want it? So to give you an idea of what sort of expensive movies musicals are, I went and found a list, and they sort of start with... Note, Lestat isn't even on this list of top ten expensive ones. It's yes. like Aladdin... That's how much the market has changed since then. Keep yeah. in mind. Because before... Spider-Man Turn of the Dark, the most expensive musical of all time was Shrek. So Aladdin, 14 million. Phantom, 14 million. Dance of the Vampires, 15 million. Tarzan, 16 million. Little Mermaid, 16.6 million. Wicked, just under 17 million. Beauty and the Beast, 17.5 million. Lion King, 27.5 million. Which is quite a jump. To mount that musical? Are you sure? That doesn't sound right. That's what it says here. It's what the it's what uh, these have all been adjusted for modern right. for modern adjustment. That will why okay. Yeah, um, Shrek twenty seven point six, Spider Man seventy nine million. Plus, they probably had to pay out a lot in insurance and health fee, no, medical I, fees. That's where the money went. One of the reasons that Sunset Boulevard cost so much to mount and didn't make its money back was because Andrew Lloyd Webber had to be patted with a million dollars out of a lawsuit, and then he had to pay off Faye Dunaway for sacking her as well. 
Yeah, well, think about the, the technical requirements of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, plus the insurance that insurance people would want pay and everything like that, plus any other medical or whatever expenses that come from it, because, I mean, how many Spider-Men did they injure? Several. <laughs> that one guy who just fell off the stage because they forgot to hook his harness in. Plus, I think some of the cast costumes were really sparkly, so they had to, like, you know, pay for each sparkle. Those costumes were designed by the woman who designed the costumes for Bram Stoker's Dracula. As far as I know, no one almost died making Lestat, except for maybe Elton John's ego. <laughs> so, I love doing another production of this. I think it will be really fascinating to see. But there's so much more they could have done. One of those things, if you did it right, it would be amazing, but it didn't happen. So, anything else you want to poke fun at, at Lestat? I just found it really dull. I wish it was worse. I wish there was just something. It's not even, you know, Dance of the Vampires bad. Because at least then but we could happily... I, could, I physically couldn't watch. Yeah, it. but it means we could rag on it forever and ever Wait, and ever and ever. I was hoping it would be as bad as The Room, you know? <laughs> oh, yes. But, like, I would like to see Hugh Panaro and Drew Sarek do a show together. I'd watch that. I'd yeah. like to see Hugh Panaro do something that isn't Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> What's he up to now? What was he doing? He was he's doing uh last thing I was looking at is he was doing Phantom of the Opera before he got replaced by Norm Lewis. So <laughs> I feel like even the people of Phantom were like, dude, you've got to just like go on a holiday or something. I think he's doing some concerts or whatever. Maybe he's just taking a break. Enjoy your life, Hugh. We're not yeah. looking here. So, looking at the okay, the mediocre, and the what the hell of vampire musicals, including Dance of the Vampires, what would be your recommendation for the True Blood musical? Oh, camp it up. Fully camp it up. Like, the, the show was at its most enjoyable when it was basically orgy soap opera. That's why we watched it. I mean... We will talk about this when we eventually do our True Blood episode, which will take a while because we will have to watch seven seasons of that show. Still not but... the worst thing we've done for this podcast. <laughs> we are dedicated. But the thing about that show that it did so badly was Alan Ball, the writer, really wanted to commit to this idea that vampirism could be the metaphor for the LGBT rights struggle. Now... <laughs> I don't think either of us speak for the LGBTQ community as a whole here. Uh, but the gays aren't going to break into your house and eat your children. The vampires will. So that metaphor didn't work. The show worked at its best when it just embraced it's Louisiana and there are vampires and there's fucking. The gay community is more like the guy played by, um, St- not Stephen Webb, Stephen Root. You know, who just at home. Yes. When the but, show was basically Dynasty, but with vampires, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's just like politics, if they're dramatic politics. I would do that. Yeah, my suggestion for the True Blood musical would be go for the Russell Edgington sort of seasons. Because that's yes. the, sort of the right amount of camp. You've got a strong antagonist. Plus, you could ask Dennis O'Hare back. Who we love. But that's the thing is, the, one of the main problems of Lestat is there is no discernible antagonist. And desperately needs one so why not if you're going to do true blood pick who in my opinion was the most interesting antagonist on the show who was russell edgington yeah who was 
really over the top and camp, but genuinely unnerving at times. I mean, this is the guy that pulls out the spinal cord of a newsreader live on TV. And back to the weather, <laughs> Tiffany. <laughs> yeah. Because Steve's the best. Yeah. The first season of um, True Blood, the, the, the villain, the mystery, was a dude who was raping and killing women. Possibly not in that order. I mean, cut the rape. If you're going to adapt it. Yeah. Ripping, like, killing... Po- it's mostly going to be women watching your show, because most Broadway audiences are women. Ripping, killing, possibly not in their order, women who'd been sleeping with vampires because of issues with his sister. Second season was the weird Mayanad orgy Dallas politics thing. It was Living Dead in Dallas with extra orgy. And third season is when you get Russell in. Fourth season is finally Aunt Petunia gets to be a witch, but she's a sad witch. Not really, you know, musical, but Russell Edgington has, you know, a strong antagonist, a good flair for the dramatic in the camp. Plus, it's late enough that the Sookie and Bill Eric triangle is sort of at its UST peak, but it's not so late that you really need to know all this story about it. You know, Suki and Bill are together. Eric wants in on that. How do you end that? Do you end it with Suki and Bill or do you end it with Suki and Eric? I mean, sensible people end it with Suki and Eric. Or it just goes, and the, and the threesome continues. Yeah, just make it polyamorous. Like, the book should have done. Just, just have the, or just have the three of them still in their weird dance of what's going on and Pam's just like, ugh, those three. And what that's... was the line that Pam says, was, I'm, so damn su- I'm so damn sick of Suki and her fairy magic Magi- vagina. Magical fairy <laughs> vagina or something. <laughs> Make Pam the star. That would be a good star. Well, I kind of just want for the hilarity someone like Kristen Chenoweth. Oh, she'd rock it. Just tiny and blonde. And just anyone who... Eric carry her around the stage. Yeah, just anyone, anyone who sort of plays that Galinda role in Wicked, you know, that sort of character type. But just And also she's she's actually from the South, so she yeah. can do the accent. But Pam isn't from the South. Oh that's true. The thing uh, is as well, the music as we mentioned for this is being done by the guy who did the music for the show. I think you need to go I mean, if you're gonna set in Louisiana you might as well go a little bit bluegrass. Whether or not that will work on a Broadway stage, I don't know. Steve Martin recently did a bluegrass themed musical called Bright Star and that Lopped quite big. I'd say they probably have to do some sort of reference or sound reference or adaptation of the theme song because, you know, maybe that is sort of the undertone. But the thing is, the most accurate representation of the style and the tone that Alan Ball clearly wanted True Blood to be is in the opening credits to that show. Yeah. But the rest of it is like, nope. Not so much. I really can't criticize. I don't think the show and play it totally earnest even no, though in case you made an earnest adaptation of Sweet Gold it has to be campy and there needs to be male nudity well obviously that goes without saying because I mean well Tunstall here has female nudity Dracula the musical very infamously had a f- nude scene from a, a female nude scene yeah, it was okay you know we put they put in the nude scene because that'll get your attention if there is a True Blood musical that has no nudity. The only reason people watched True Blood was for the nudity. They're like, are they going to show it this season? Are they going to show it this season? Yes, we saw it. Green cats, green cats. Make it into a gif, make it into a gif, and it just went everywhere. We have to let our imaginations run wild. 
Dreamcasting, go. Can we just put, do we need to put Drew Sarek in there somewhere just to keep us run as all the vampires? We could just twist it and make him one of the werewolves. He's no, not he big enough. Him. Like, if Dennis O'Hare is busy. Oh boy, I, I was thinking Bill just to ensure, because he's got that southern thing. because he doesn't put him in a stupid wig. Obviously, first choice for Russell would be Dennis O'Hare. Um, I am happy with Drew Sarek in multiple roles, but probably as um, Russell would be a very good choice as well. Maybe Raul Esparza as well. He should just be in everything. He, we yeah. need him back on Broadway. In a way that lets us still have him on Special Victims Unit. No, that show's terrible. We need him off Special Victims Unit. Even though my mother has just started watching it and I'm surprised it hasn't taken her longer. Well, if we can keep him on Broadway but still get Special Victims Unit, that would be the best of both worlds. That's what most Broadway actors do. Well, we talked about Kristen Chenoweth as teeny tiny blonde Pam because she she would physically fit that role. Especially he if would you... be Suki then. Actually, I know he would be a really good Suki. Who? Uh, Megan Hilty. Another Glinda? She was a Glinda. She was also the Dolly Parton role in 95, the musical. Maybe one of the actresses who played in, like, um, Legally Blonde? Sheridan Smith, who played Elwood's on the West End in Legally Blonde musical and is currently doing Funny Girl. She could be a really good Suki. Yeah. She's a natural comedian who's also got one hell of a set of pipes. I don't know if she could do the accent, but <sighs> Anna Pacman couldn't either. Do you think there's a future for vampire musicals? Or do you I, think they've kind of exhausted themselves? I think if they actually made a good one, Task of Vampire just keeps going and going and going. It came out 1997? Was the when they first did their first yes. run of... 1997. It's coming up for 20 years. Yeah. It's travelled from country to country, certainly, but it's been pretty much constant. There have been breaks, but it's sort of, you know, as they move to another country a few months type of break, not it's a significant enough break that we can call it the revival cast. So there, there is a market. I think they just need to find the right way of doing it. True Blood... At least in the English language. At least in the English language. Because Tansa Vampire has managed to do it in multiple languages. So the idea of translating it isn't exactly a problem. It's the fact that Michael Crawford fucked it up. You're still holding that over his head, aren't you? Yep. They just need to actually submit to the idea of making it camp. Considering how campy True Blood got and how it was sort of at its most successful with the audience when it was that Russell Edgington camp and drama and vampire soap opera. Yes. They need to just stick with that. I think there's a lot of negativity around the concept of camp. It A lot of that is rooted in homophobia. Uh, but there's an idea that camp means less serious. Like, you can't explore real emotion or situations through the medium of camp, which I don't think is true. I mean, I think Phantom of the Opera is very camp, and it actually is pretty sophisticated in what it's doing. And also has a complete emotional arc that actually pays off, if you ignore Love Never Dies. <laughs> but even something like the Coppola Dracula, which is very camp, very melodramatic, the material is inherently melodramatic, it lends itself well to camp, but I think you need someone who's willing to to go the the extra mile there. They just need to not be afraid to do it. So it needs to be soap opera plus naked, male naked. Blood. <laughs> blood. I think it needs a lot of blood. Just commit to the blood. Again, this is another reason why they should bring in like someone like Drew Sarek, because he has experience with the onstage blood packs. You think he should just be in everything? Yes. You know 
those people who want Idris Elba to play every role, those people <laughs> who are right, for like the musical theatre version of that. But I mean, I would love to see more of that intersection of vampire stories and musicals, because obviously they're two of the things that we really love. <laughs> and we could talk about them for days. Um, I don't think we'll see it. I would love to even just see... I think the baby step that you could take would be to revive Dracula on stage, just as a play, not a musical. Yeah. Or so, even Carmilla, just for a bit of flavour change. Yeah, but like just hearing about this Langella production, like I want to hear how steamy this thing was. People just sort of faint in the audience? or Well, there just seemed to be a lot of like post-show fucking. <laughs> That's, I would like to see that. You know, the show works when people who love musicals make it and people who love the material make it. So maybe that person will one day come along. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a new Lestat book coming out this year. The interest is still there, maybe not quite on the same level of sales, but nothing, bar a few exceptions, really makes those kind of literary sales anymore. So Yeah. So basically, just commit to it. Commit we to it good. Make- in some kind of revival or reimagining of the Lestat musical future because the movie rights are back in force. Um, I believe it's Kurtzman and Orphy, the producers, who have the rights to the movie, and they're going to be reviving that. Or please don't be Jared Leto, please don't. Or, or Cumberbatch, please don't be Cumberbatch. Hey, Lestat casting suggestions, send them to us. Or just general True Blood musical casting suggestions. Yeah, get in touch with Who do you think should be it? Or what other vampire properties could become musical? If you say Anita Blake vampire humper, I will punch you. <laughs> Please tell me humper was intended. Yes. Okay, because well, that would be an amazing Freudian slip. <laughs> no, I never refer to it as vampire hunter. It's always Anita Blake. Although really it should be Anita Blake everyone humper. <laughs> the MacGyver of vaginas. The queen of dubious consent. <laughs> you know, get in touch with us if you've seen any other vampire musicals at all. We know that there are others that are not in the English language, which we have heard of or even heard some of, but they're not translated into English, so we really can't do much with them. Yeah, I'm not learning French that fast. Yeah, I can't say I'm that interested to learn. Was it Czech? <laughs> I think one was in Czech. Yeah, it's Czech. Yeah. Is that it? Are we done? I think we're done. Next month we will be watching Byzantium, the 2012 Irish horror fantasy thriller film directed by Neil Jordan and starring Gemma Arterton, Sisha Ronan and Johnny Lee Miller. Yes, I just quoted that directly from Wikipedia. It's about mother and daughter vampires, so there should be a lot of female interaction on there, which is always something we like to see in our vampire fiction. Uh, I haven't seen it, but Kaylee apparently has. So it'll be interesting to see what it's like on a second viewing for you and a first for me. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? Long live vampire musicals. The good ones. The one good one. So that's us. You can catch us on our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com. Send us an email at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That is fangmail with a G because we love puns, as do apparently all vampires. Uh, we're also on Twitter, bloodsuckingfem, bloodsuckingfeminists on Facebook, and I'm sure if you Google, you'll find more places that we are, or at least people insulting us for our name. Long live that trend. Long l- every single time it happens, guys. Yeah, long live the trend of people not realising that they are the joke. So we'll see you next month. Until then, don't let the vampires bite. I mean, at least it's your thing. <laughs> <laughs>